Welcome to Would You Rather, a podcast where Cosmos Magazine journalists debate a topic and only one comes out the victor. I'm Ellen Fidian, and the last time I was on a boat, I saw a pod of whales. And I'm Matthew Aegis, and I really don't like boats at all. Controversial opinion to start the podcast with. So, today we're looking at the merits of a couple of very famous scientific voyages, one of which was on a boat. So the first thing we're looking at is the voyage of discovery Charles Darwin took on the HMS Beagle, which led directly to his developing the theories of evolution and natural selection. Mm. And then there's the Apollo 11 mission, and specifically the moon landing in the lunar module Eagle. So our question is, would you rather be on the Beagle or the Eagle? Both very important journeys for the history of science and neither of them necessarily very comfortable. So I've taken a look at the Beagle and Matt has investigated the Eagle. So let's start with a bit of information on these trips then, Ellen. How did the Beagle voyage actually play out? So the voyage that Darwin went on was the second voyage of the HMS Beagle, which was a British Navy ship. It was first developed to be like a warship fitted out with guns, but they didn't use it. So they refitted it as a surveying ship. So what the Beagle was mostly doing was hydrographic surveys, so basically mapping. Um, And there are actually a lot of comments in Australian newspapers from its visit saying, oh, we're really hoping that they're going to have time to survey this bit because we really need to know what the hydrography is around there, that sort of thing. It'll be really handy. So the Beagle voyage that Darwin went on went from 1831 to 1836. It was five years long. Darwin was the ship's naturalist. He was 22 when the voyage started and 27 when it returned. They spent most of their time in South America um, and then they kind of skipped across the Pacific and the Atlantic. They went to New Zealand, Australia and stopped briefly in South Africa as well. So a big tour of the Southern Hemisphere. Now, the Eagle mission went a bit further, but I believe it was also significantly shorter, yes? You are correct, Ellen. And so the Eagle is the lunar lander that set down on the moon in the famous Apollo 11 mission. So to that effect, it travelled, as you have identified, less of a distance than the Beagle when we're talking explicitly from the perspective of the command module Columbia to the moon's surface. But of course, it did travel from Earth to the moon on that module, which was a distance of just under 400,000 kilometres. And you're right, it was a single voyage to the moon and from launch to return it took just eight days, so a pretty quick trip all around. But I guess to me that's probably the most spectacular trip that anyone has ever taken. We've landed on the moon. It was a massive objective for clearly the US government under Kennedy and in doing so we've actually pushed you know, the frontier of human exploration out further, a lot further uh, than any sort of mere boat journey across the ocean. So, Ellen, explain to me why going to Hobart is more exciting than going to a big mass of rock orbiting our planet. Well, some of our Cosmos editors are based in Hobart. I would really like to hear their opinions on the merits of that wonderful capital city. Um, look, the moon... I think the that's called of- being a sycophant, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, all right. The concept of the moon is exciting. I'll give you that. But actually, like when you're there, if you're an observer on this voyage, you are seeing rocks and stars. Like you're also seeing, see- you're also seeing our planet. Yeah, but like I can see planets from my house too. Yeah, you can't see them, you know, 
in terms of what they actually look like, though. I mean, seeing seeing a star in the sky or what is as as good as appears to be a star in the sky, a blip of light for Jupiter, is nothing to actually standing on a lunar surface being like, hey, I can literally see my planet in full resolution from where I am. And I would also argue that it's not nearly as exciting as standing on the Galapagos Islands when hardly anyone else has visited it, visited them and looking at all of the incredible animals there. Um, And I'm not just talking about the Galapagos Islands. Like I said, the beagle went all the way around the world. It spent a long time in South America and then jumped around Australia and New Zealand as well on the way back. And there was lots of really, really interesting things that um, Europeans hadn't seen before. Darwin was actually originally a geologist. He called his job geologizing. And that was really, really important for gathering information on the formation and thus the age of the Earth. So a lot of the stuff he was seeing with his kind of geologist eyes was was entirely new and I would argue, again, significantly more interesting than just moon rocks, right? Um, Perhaps. <laughs> he also uh, recorded and looked at a tremendously large number of plants. He said that all travellers should be botanists, which I think is really cool. Um, one of the things I want to focus on specifically is this journey they did out of Sydney where he saw this rat kangaroo and this platypus and he noticed that both of them were filling the same niche as the rabbit and the rat in the northern hemisphere. And that kind of made him think, well, why do we have, why are the platypus and the rat kangaroo down here and not just a rabbit and a rat? Like, why are those two things different? And this is kind of the beginning of one of these threads of natural selection. This is leading him to discuss, this is leading him to figure out his theory as to how these creatures evolved. So, yeah, sure. In terms of like sheer novelty, I guess the concept of the moon is a lot more interesting. But in terms of the amount of novelty you would get to see on the Beagle Voyage, I really think you're going to be winning out there. So, like, really, why is this worse than just kind of messing around in a marshmallow suit for a few hours? Well, I think that that is a little bit of a um, uh, unfair way of describing, you know, what was, you know, at the time completely advanced technology uh, for, for, for protection from the vacuum of space. The However, Beagle was also advanced technology for the time. It was the first ship, one of the first ships ever to rec- um, included this instrument for measuring wind, for instance. Sorry, go on. Sure, but um, you're not going to get sucked into the vacuum of space if you get it all wrong. So that, that's fine. That's fine, Ellen. You, you can say that. I will, I will I, you know, I have to rebut as part of the format. And I think for me is that at the end of the day, we are talking about the moon. And, yes, there is a matter of taste. Yes, on the Beagle you are discovering lots of new things, plants, wildlife, geology, creative, creating new theories and, and so on. But people have gone on boats before. Like that is a documented fact. And people have discovered new things, usually other places before too. So uh, with the moon, we are pushing the limits of our knowledge out to a new extreme, at least at the time of Apollo 11. Actually setting down on another celestial body, massive achievement. And the only thing that really comes close to me would be doing the same thing on Mars for our generation. And that feels a pretty long shot at this point by all accounts and certainly within our lifetimes. And, you know, to your point of what the Beagle was doing, so too did Apollo 11. It was the first mission 
thanks to being the first one to actually land on the moon, to bring back samples of that big lunar rock to Earth. So 21.6 kilograms worth of moon material, of which you know encompasses 50 individual rock samples, were brought back. So for the first time, we're actually able to study in labs the exact type of material that covers the surface of the thing we can look up and see in the night sky. And that is of some depth as well. It's it's regolith going to a depth of 13 centimetres from the surface of the moon. So we are starting to see for the first time what this world is. We're discovering that there's no water in the samples and that there is no evidence for life. And I think that for me, that is the the, the sheer human achievement of, of not only just getting to the moon but being able to actually take something from out of this world, study it in detail and have done so deliberately is a massive thing to be a part of. We're, we're talking going beyond just, you know, space rocks landing in, on the planet's surface and being able to study that. We have deliberately done this. It is of our own volition that we're doing so. And I think being able to understand that and then use that as the milestone point from which all other space exploration has taken place is quite amazing. And, you know, these guys are at the top of their game. They're, they're what we would sort of look at an elite athlete in the Olympics today in terms of physical specimens to handle the, um, you know, the, the sheer pressure of force of space i don't know ellen was charles darwin particularly good company on the beagle well i'm going to challenge to start with the idea that an athlete is uh, naturally someone you'd want to hang out with i don't think you've spent that long in gyms if you think that matt um actually darwin i think would be really really cool person to spend a bit of time with he was actually one of the reasons he was uh, asked to go on the voyage was that the captain wanted some company and darwin was quite good company he was training to be a clergyman which is a very kind of personable profession a lot of the time um and there wasn't it wasn't just darwin on the ship there was about 70 people on the ship people kind of got on and got off at different points um but that was about the number now that's a fairly crowded boat. It was only 27 metres long. Darwin actually initially had to sleep in a hammock before he got some quarters. But I still think it would be really, really cool to kind of crowd into that ship with him because one of the things, one, well, the main reason that Darwin is lauded so much among scientists is that he was such a thorough scientist. Like we can talk about, you know, Newton having really, really brilliant ideas, for instance, being a brilliant physicist, but he spent most of his life doing alchemy. Darwin spent most of his life trying to disprove his own theory. That takes real dedication and that's real core science -y. We have to test things. We've got a theory and we have to find reasons why that theory doesn't work. We're not trying to simply prove ourselves. We're trying to disprove ourselves. And I think someone who's kind of got that mentality before there's a whole huge culture of science existing would be a really, really interesting person to talk to. And, you know, there's also the whole interested people are interesting, right? He took notes on everything. He was so interested in the world around him. And I don't know if you've ever gone for a walk with an ecologist before, but the way they kind of like look at stuff that's around them, you can spend kind of an hour going about 10 metres just because they're investigating bugs. It, it really makes the world so much more exciting. I mean, I did study ecology. Oh. So I've been for walks with myself, but I think I'd rather be on a rocket to the moon at the end of the day. Like, if you gave me the chance, that's the one I'd be taking. Really? Really? I mean, like, 
I don't want to. I don't want to uh, sully the names of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, but astronauts kind of famously are chosen for like knowing a lot about safety and like keeping cool heads in crises, which is absolutely the sort of person you want on a rocket ship. It's not necessarily someone you want to have a beer with, though, right? I don't know. I think that you know, Air Force pilots, which is often where. Uh, astronauts tend to have come from probably got some cool stories about flying fast planes look maybe it's because i'm a guy and i'm just into that sort of real red-blooded adventurous stuff ellen and you know i, I just can't <laughs> fathom the idea of, of of taking the option that you're advocating for but uh look i think you know for me you, 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 you look you're making some great points about charles darwin but i think at the end of the day didn't the guy that you know discovered all these animals actually eat them as well I'm pretty sure that Charles Darwin <laughs> had a habit for actually eating exotic animals, which, you know, as a, a you know student of ecology, I just can't abide by. Uh, look, that's correct. And I actually think that would be kind of interesting as well. Uh, there's, there's notes in his journals over like how good turtles taste, for instance. There are some lizards that he ate in South America that he said were so good that anybody who didn't like them must have genuinely terrible taste. Like I would be really, eh, I think it would be kind of interesting to try that, assuming it's not now an endangered species, right? Um, and I think that's part of the diversity of the mission. Like I, you'd get to eat so many interesting things, not just like the animals that you were studying. You don't want to do too much of that, obviously. Um, but going to all of these different places and trying the different foods there, you don't get to do that on the eagle. Well, that's true. The only other rebuttal I would have as to your argument for Charles Darwin is that isn't the guy that, you know, described evolution and survival of the fittest and, you know, from that point we get that broad understanding of evolutionary biology and the idea that you should actually have some sort of diversity in your genes to be a fit candidate for survival, actually marry his first cousin after writing a list about the pros and cons of marriage. Like, okay, a me, it just doesn't really fit in with this, like, you know, infallible genius that you're sort of portraying to me. I mean, I can cop that, you know, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins might not be, you know, the most compelling figures in history, albeit, you know, ones that happen to, you know, do that big journey. But, you know, at least at least they're not sort of, sort of saying one thing and then kind of doing a thing that might be a bit counter to that as well. For the record, I think it, we should make it extremely clear that Darwin married his first cousin before he really thoroughly developed the theory about genetic diversity. All right. Well, I can't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Fine. Okay. So we know that going to space is pretty dangerous, like on paper, that the idea of doing that is not a particularly human thing to be doing. How dangerous is the Beagle voyage? So 19th century sea voyages, the mortality was generally not very good. They'd figured out stuff like scurvy at this point, brought fruit onto ships, um, but there still wasn't that much they could do about infectious diseases. Um, you know, vaccination against smallpox was around, but we didn't have any other types of vaccinations to any great extent, um, and particularly tropical diseases that uh, Europeans hadn't been exposed to could be massive, massive killers. That said, the Beagle, so 70-odd people, only five deaths for the whole voyage. That's really very good. Um, it's it's not particularly, that's not a particularly high-risk mission for the time. And I'd say compared to being an astronaut, it's not particularly high-risk either. 
I should note that Darwin was sick, like, basically all the time. There is actually some speculation that Darwin picked up a parasite in Chile that kind of stayed with him for the rest of his life. He had some kind of chronic symptoms that might have been consistent with that. We don't really know. We're sort of diagnosing decades after his death on this sort of thing. Um, And that said, he still died at 73. That's a really good innings for the 19th century. I think I should also mention, though, that there were other risks on the voyage. Um, The command of um, these sorts of voyages was apparently really mega stressful. Um, The previous captain of the Beagle and a couple of other senior people involved with it had unfortunately taken their own lives. So it wasn't like a completely uh, cheerful mission (laughs) the whole time. Um, And there were also other risks. So when they got to Concepcion in... um, South America, there was this massive earthquake and it pretty much leveled the town. So it was a seriously dangerous thing. Out of that suffering, though, there was quite a crucial little thing that Darwin noticed, which is that the earthquake raised the seabed a tiny little bit. And he connected that to seeing fossilized oysters about 100 meters above sea level and then also a few kilometers above sea level, which kind of got him on the thought plane of, well, maybe this land has been raising itself very, very slowly over the centuries with these earthquakes. There were other risks as well. When he got to Hobart, at one point, Darwin handled a tiger snake because he didn't think it was venomous. So he was kind of picking it up and looking really closely at it and taking notes on it because it had like a very thin head, which in Europe means that the snake's usually not venomous. Adders with the like big flat heads are the dangerous snakes in Europe. Fortunately for everyone, it didn't bite him. So yes, look, there were risks, but I don't think the risks are worse than the risks of going to space, particularly on the early Apollo missions. I mean, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were not the first Apollo astronauts down to go to the moon, were they? They were astronauts before them that were killed in an accident, right? Yes, space travel was not without its risks. And yes, Apollo pilots prior to Apollo 11 had died in testing and preparation. So can't escape that. For the purposes of Beagle versus Eagle, though, you know, they all came back. So I think, you know, for the purposes of this, it's still <laughs> a pretty, you know, a pretty big achievement in, in terms of not only the achievement but also the safety component as well. But, look, you're right. You can't escape the fact that space travel is inherently dangerous and carries a massive amount of risk with it. Um, but at the same time, I mean... We've got rocks from the moon to show for it, Ellen, so I'm not really sure how well that one flies over, as it were. Um, but, look, you know, let's let's work it out. Uh, have you convinced me or have I convinced you of, of the merits of, of this, uh, of this uh, Beagle versus Eagle contest? I still think that I would rather spend more time looking around the earth than I would spend a week in the Eagle Lander. That said, a five-year voyage um, is a really, really long amount of time. So, And you have to take this voyage in the same circumstances, right? <laughs> so, you know, we're not talking like modern, modern tech and modern ships here. You're you know, you're going vintage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're sleeping in the hammock with 70 other people on the tiny ship. Yeah, look, I think probably sleeping if I actually Sleeping in the hammock had... with 70 people wouldn't be particularly comfortable either based on mm. what you just told me. 
Yeah. For sure, for sure. Um, <laughs> I think if I had to choose, I probably would say the Eagle Lander. Uh, that said, if tomorrow someone said, would you rather go to the moon or would you rather go to the Galapagos Islands? Galapagos Islands, 100%. <laughs> Okay, I mean, if someone says to me tomorrow, if you want to go to the moon or Galapagos, I know I can go to the Galapagos any old time I'm going on the moon. So, um, yeah, but it wouldn't look, be very comfortable still, still. <laughs> well, um, look, I, I'm sticking with, with the space one, Ellen, so. Fair enough. Uh, I'll hand did, this one to you. You did a very good job of, of trying to convince me. All right, with that all said, thanks for listening to Would You Rather. We hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is produced by the Royal Institution of Australia in Adelaide on Ghana land. The Royal Institution of Australia is a not-for-profit whose mission is to communicate science widely as a key to a better world. As the key to a better world. We do this through our daily news stories, which are turned into educational resources, teaching the scientists of tomorrow about the science of today in classrooms across Australia. Support us by subscribing to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's leading print science magazine. Mm-hmm.